have been learning is all of this and my family, my home, all of this is not about me. It's not even about us. It's about our children's children. So if that doesn't hit you yet, it's because you are where I was. Once it hits you, you agree with it from the deepest part of who you are. We have to think this way or we will consume everything and we will leave our children worse off. This actually applies to nearly every area of life all over the planet, but more specifically today, this ministry. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about our children's children. If we think like that, then the decisions that we make will put them in a good position. If we don't think like that, we will consume everything and leave them to fend for themselves. The second lesson that I've been learning, we have got to stop waiting for the Holy Spirit to push us toward things we have already been commanded to do. And this applies from the simplest things to the most extreme. From believing that we are forgiven when we confess and that we can't add anything to the cross by punishing ourselves for our sin and giving up our lives to make disciples of the most extreme Muslim nations and everything in between. Let me say that again. We have to stop making the Holy Spirit push us into things that we've already been commanded to do. When you confess your sin, you're forgiven. Don't punish yourself after that. You can't add to the cross. That's a simple thing. A more complicated thing would be making disciples of extreme Muslim nations. Okay? Because we were told to make disciples of all nations. Right? So this means that we have to raise up men and women who are fearless. We have to raise up men and women who have been taught rightly. The men that we raise up have to not be afraid to go wherever the Lord calls them and do whatever he calls them to do as first by what's written in his word, first there, and then second by what the Holy Spirit specifically reveals. We have to raise up women who don't fear listening to their husband because of what place he might bring them into or fear so much for their children that they're willing to compromise what God has called them to. Let me say that again. We have to raise up women who don't fear where their husbands will lead them nor fear for their children so much that they're willing to compromise what God has called them to. We have to raise up men who are fearless and women who are fearless Amen. so that we can do everything that God has in mind to do. Because I'll tell you this, our hearts are to, not, are, are, are to not allow even one thing to remain on the list of things that God has purposed for this church to accomplish. We don't want one single thing left on that list of specific works that he prepared in advance for us to do. We want to accomplish every single one. Batons that others have dropped that we have picked up, we want to accomplish what God has given us to do from them as well. And we want to raise up children who will do the exact same thing until the kingdom of God has advanced all over the earth. That's what we want. There are 7,000 unreached people groups around the world. And we have been commanded to go and make disciples of all nations. And yet for the most part, especially in this country, we immerse ourselves in comfort and entertainment and build our own kingdom, call it God, and compete with other people to see who's blessed more. This is wrong thinking. And it's put us in a bad spot. But we're going to correct it. Amen. Amen? Amen? Be of good cheer. Both of these lessons have led me to what we are going to talk about today. And that is believing before seeing. Can we say that together? Amen. Believing before seeing. Amen. Believing before seeing. Let's go to John 20. I'll show you what I mean. Go to verse 24. Say, I believe it when you get there. I believe it. Starting in verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, 
was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So Jesus came after he resurrected from the dead and revealed himself to the disciples. Everybody but Thomas was there. Thomas wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Can I share something with you? He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's something that we skip over. We think, oh yeah, so it's better to believe even before you've seen. But have you ever asked yourself, what's the blessing that comes when you believe before you've seen? Think about it. Go back to Matthew 5. We're not going to read all of it. But read in Matthew 5. You remember the Beatitudes? Y'all can talk to me. Don't be afraid. Yeah, I remember that. Okay. When we see what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What do they get for being poor in spirit? The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. What do they get? Comfort. What are they? Blessed are those who meek. What do they get? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What do they get? Okay, so we see that everybody who gets blessed gets something, right? So blessed are you who believe and have not seen. Well, what's the reward? What do you get? Alex knows. He knows it, it's everything. So let's pray. Everybody stand. No, come on. What's the reward? What do you get? We're going to find out today. Blessed are you who believe and have not seen. How many people in here would say, I believe even though I haven't seen? Raise your hand. I believe even though I haven't seen. Most of us have that to some degree. We believe even though we haven't seen. And then the rest of our lives, we take calculated risks. Calculated risks. We figure out how much it's going to cost us, determine if we're willing to pay that price, and then we move forward cautiously. Believe without seeing. My focus is not to pick on Thomas, but rather to focus on those few words. Thomas needed to see, didn't he? To put his fingers where the nails had been and his hand into Jesus' side. There's a special blessing that comes with that. Now, I'm not comparing myself to Thomas. His name is written on the foundation of the New Jerusalem. Mine is not. But I want to focus on Jesus' words here because I really want to know what that blessing is for those who believe and have not seen. Because there's a lot of things I haven't seen. Amen? There's a lot of things I haven't seen. And I want to get every single blessing that's available to me. Do you want everything that God has for you? When I stand before him face to face on that day, I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. Now you will be entrusted with much. That's what I want to hear. Because I know that that's going to last for eternity. How long does this life last for? And it's gone. So shouldn't I be living for eternity? Let's go back to Genesis 14. We're going to take a look at some men who believed before they saw. And we're going to see the blessings that came with it. Now, we know Abraham. Abraham means what? Does anybody remember? Father of many nations. Before he was Abraham, he was who? Abram, which means what? Exalted father, blessed father. Leading up to a rescuing that happens for his nephew Lot in chapter 14, Abram hasn't done much that's commendable. He left his father's house. He told the people in Egypt that his wife was his sister. And then he got kicked out of Egypt by Pharaoh. 
And he had to separate because he had too much stuff. That's the beginning of this story. Pastor Nick was sharing with me that that is the quintessential college student. <laughs> we have 318 men, though, in his house. Take a look at Genesis 14, starting in verse 13. His nephew Lot had been kidnapped by some wicked kings. And he was taken away. Abram was living with 318 trained men in his house. Let's read about this story. One who had escaped from the wicked kings came and reported this to Abram that his nephew had been kidnapped, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Now, if you don't know some of the details of this story, it doesn't seem as extreme. Do you have that picture of where he went to? Okay, so you can't really see it, which is great. But this is a model that's built right outside a place in Tel Dan in Israel that we went to. And we took a picture of this little model. That's like the Canaanite city where Abram and his 318 trained men chased back the enemies that came and kidnapped his nephew. Go to the next picture. This is it still standing after 3,000, 3,500 years. You can look back for an even clearer picture back there if you want. It's a secret. They went 300 miles on foot to get his nephew Lot. And they beat down this enemy army that was made up of four united kings. Now you say, well, maybe they were tired after the battle. Let me tell you. If you read earlier in this chapter, these four united kings had defeated... The Rephites, the Emites, the Zuzites, and the Horites. These were all nations of giants. Do you remember whenever they went to go spy out the land in Israel? And they found giants there? And they were afraid? What we see is that Abram and his 318 trained men, at the drop of a hat, when an unrighteous man had been kidnapped... Lot, which we later find out was righteous, but he was making unrighteous decisions and living close to Sodom and living in Sodom. But when he was taken and kidnapped, these 318 trained men at the drop of a hat took off at the father's command. And they chased down enemy kings for 300 miles on foot back to their own dwelling. Kings who were giant killers. They were ready to go at the drop of a hat. Can you bring up that slide that shows? We see Abraham had not been proven yet. Would you guys agree? Abram had not been proven yet. They were fighting giant killing decade long conquerors. Those kings had been ruling for 12 years. The men were called out, they were commanded and they went, they were nameless, and they fought the father's battle. The blessing that came for them was supernatural endurance. If you were to go out and run two miles in here, how many of you would be exhausted after that? Now imagine going 300 miles while pursuing four united kingdoms who had defeated giants in the past. And there's 318 of you. Exhausted, right? They had supernatural endurance. They defeated the enemy and they recovered all that was stolen. Amen. When you read this story and you glance over those things, you think, oh, that sounds cool. Maybe chase down a few guys. That's not what happened. This was a miraculous story. It's miraculous because these 318 trained men, and you have to ask yourself, trained how? They were raised in his house. It's not like they were battle hardened. But they were trained. 
We know that they were at least trained to hear the Father's command and obey. They were at least trained in that. And these men were able to go a great distance to pursue that which was lost and recover all that was stolen. That's supernatural. They believed even though they hadn't seen. How many of you, if you belong to someone's house and he said, we're going to go 300 miles and beat down some enemy kings and take back everything that they stole from these other people who we're not related to, except for my one nephew lot, right? We're going to go and rescue all that stuff. I mean, whoa, 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 wait, 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 what's the plan? Now, where are we going? Well, how long is it going to take? Do we have the provisions that we need for the journey? Well, what will we do when we get there? They seem like there's too many. You know what? This plan does not seem like it's coming together. I, I, I just can't be a part of this. How many of you know that'd probably be my response, right? Let's be honest. Tell me about the plan again. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. No, that's not how these 318 trained men responded. They immediately went nameless. What are their names? We don't know. They're not written down. They believed even though they hadn't seen. Let's keep looking. Let's go to Judges 7. Do you guys want to deal devastating blows to the enemy's kingdom? Do we realize that things need to change for us to get there? Do we realize that we have to change? Can you say, I have to change? There is a point where we go from just dealing with sin, right? There's a point that we have to transition from where, yes, we understand the importance of dealing with sin and that now becomes just a known thing. We know that we have to deal with sin and we address it regularly. But our focus as a church is not by the time we reach King Jesus for us to simply have eradicated sin in this body or doing wrong things. That's not our goal. Our goal is not just to simply stop doing wrong things. Our goal is to accomplish everything that the Lord has given us to accomplish. Some of those things, as we stand now, unrefined in the ways that we are, are terrifying. If we were to be told about some of the things that God has planned for this church right now, if he were to show us those things before their time, some of us in here would be terrified by the things that he shows us. And so he has to bring us to that point where we trust him, where we believe without first having seen. That's a process that we have to go through. He brings about trials to test us, to get us to that place where we're not afraid so that he can show us something that our previous self would have been afraid of. He has to refine us first. And the way that we do that is by believing before we see. We're going to have to realize that the story isn't about us. It's about the father's commands. It's about going to recover that which was lost it's about pursuit until you get what he's after. Do you hear that? You may not have had a relationship with some of the lost that he's sending us to go and save. But he does. <laughs> Come on. He will sustain you. This is you warring in prayer for what moves his heart and not stopping until you see the results. How many of you have done that? How many of you have warred in prayer until you saw results? This is you purposing to make missions a priority in your life. That's time, energy, money, focus. Are you focused on the rest of the world? Or are you stuck in the never-ending, descending black hole of the American dream? Because if we get stuck in that whirlpool... We're going to swirl around until it sucks us up and we die. You have to recognize that. You got to step out of that and recognize that it's about his kingdom and not ours. Does your family have a strategy for reaching the lost? Think about it right now. Dads. Single moms. Does your family have a strategy for reaching the lost? When we go on missions, do you know what we are supposed to tell people that we would consider to be poor, people that we would consider to be in third world countries? Do you know what we're supposed to tell them once they have received Jesus, been baptized by the Holy Spirit? You know what we're supposed to tell them? Go make disciples of all nations. 
We don't tell them what they're limited, limited to. How much more so we who've been entrusted with all the resources of the earth. We don't know what it is to be poor. None of us in here do. We don't know what it is to be poor. Unless you've traveled here from another country, we're born there in poverty. You don't know what it is to be poor. You can be relatively poor compared to the richest people on earth in America. Did I lose you guys? Have your kids seen you minister to people? Do your kids regularly watch you minister to people? Has your spouse seen you minister to people? Are your friends watching you minister to people regularly? Is this regularly happening? Some of you have been coming to this church for years. Is there anyone new sitting beside you? Anybody that you've brought to this church? This church that you love? This church that's helped change your life? Have you brought anybody new? I know you've made friends with the people that are here. I know that. That's not what I'm talking about. Have you found lost people who were so impressed with your way of life and the light that you have and the love that you show that they said, I want to know everything about your life. I want to follow you. Show me where you live. Show me where you go to church, where you worship, who your friends are. Show me what you study in the word. Are you sitting next to anybody new? This is you teaching your children to know the word of God until it's hidden in their hearts and leaving them a legacy of holiness and a kingdom mentality. Think about your children. Are they growing up with a kingdom mentality? Or are you giving them the best strategies to achieve the American dream? Kingdom mentality or American dream? What are you training your kids up to do? Oh, what if it's both? I mean, is there a way that we can have both? Wrong question. Wrong question. We in Judges 7? That was a long rabbit trail. Judges 7, 12. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Now you've seen other verses... Where it talks about the enemies, the people being like the sand on the seashore. We're talking about camels being like the sea on the seashore. They had wealth. They had power. They had resources. They were intimidating. Intimidating to the people of God, which is where they were camped around. And it's in this situation that God calls out Gideon. Look at verse 16. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Did you hear that? Watch me. Follow my lead, he said. When I go to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon! Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man, listen to this, held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out, as they fled. Do you know that Gideon hadn't done anything yet to prove himself besides tear down an altar in a pole and sacrifice a bull on a new altar? That's all he had done. He then whittled down his men from 32,000 to 300. So if you first saw Gideon and thought, hmm, here's a revolutionary, he tore down a pole and an altar and then he sacrificed on a right altar. This guy seems like he's, he knows what he's doing. Seems like he's pretty smart. Seems like he's got a plan, a strategy. Then you watch him whittle down 32,000 to 300 and you say, I must have missed it. This guy is a whack job, right? He hadn't been vindicated. He had not been justified in the eyes of the people. And yet these 300 men watched him. They did exactly as he did. They followed him closely. They held their position even though the strategy for the war seemed ridiculous. These men believed 
before they saw. Can you bring up that other slide with the Gideon's men? So let's recap that again. Gideon had not been proven and victory would come against all odds. The men, they watched him, followed his lead, did exactly as he did, and they held their position. The blessing, supernatural victory, relentless pursuit, and they plundered the enemy. Let's read about it. Look in verse, chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. So once again, they started off in a position. Remember, Abram's men started off at home. And then they pursued deep into the enemy's territory. Do you see that? And then here, look what they did. They didn't just beat the Midianites in their homeland. They didn't just rescue the area around where they lived. Look at what they did, starting in verse 4. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Sukkoth said, uh, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? What was motivating them? Well, they hadn't seen him win the battle yet. And what was the cost? Well, our precious bread. We need to know that this bread's going to go to a good home. A home where people win battles. And you haven't won any battles yet. So for now, this bread stays with us. We're talking 300 men. Helping fight their battle. And they said, mm, I don't know if we can trust you with this bread. That's a little too high of a price for us to pay. That's our bread. That's our bread we're talking about. We're fighting for your lives. We're fighting to protect your life, including this bread. But okay, listen to how Gideon responds. Gideon replied, just for that, <laughs> when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. It's like, okay. From there, he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Sukkoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Sure enough, he, he wins. And he comes back and he tortures them with thorns, just like he said he would. And he tears down these other people's tower, just like he said he would. And then look at verse 24. And he said, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from the share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. Sure enough, Gideon wins the battle with his 300 men. They go on pursuit and all along the way, they're going to defeat these Ishmaelites. That's the end result. That's what's going to happen. Did you see that Gideon knew it was going to happen? I'm going to beat them and you're not going to get any share of the plunder. In fact, I'll come back with judgment for you. Because you weren't willing to pay even a little cost for this victory. Which is actually for your benefit. Are we preaching yet? Do you hear where I'm going? I'll make the simple connections. Let's do it. This is us. There is a battle that is going on. The judge will win the battle. Victory is certain. It will happen. And he is coming along to you and he says, will you pay the price? Will you, will you pay a price? Will you pay a price, Anthony, to help me? Tony, will you pay a price? I, I, I'm going on a battle right now. We've got a war that's going on. Will you pay a price to help assist in this war effort? Dave, we have a war that's going on. Are you willing to pay any price to help out? Kim, will you pay a price to help out with this war? We need help. We're moving along in this journey. And this journey that we're on is actually for your benefit. We're actually fighting a war that benefits you. This victory will help ensure your way of life. Will you help us? And yet it wasn't just that one place, Sukkoth. It was also Peniel. Which shows you that that wasn't just one segment of people. It was multiple people. That said, no, 
We're not willing to help. This little bit, that's too high a price. Show us that you'll win, and then maybe we'll consider helping. They missed it. They had a chance to believe before they saw. And yet they thought about it and weren't sure that victory was certain. So they held back. And that's how they go down in this story as people who held back because they hadn't seen victory yet. They weren't sure and they weren't willing to pay even the small price of bread for men who were actually fighting the war. Can I tell you, I don't just want to be a man who opens the door and gets asked for bread. I want to be part of the men who are running down <laughs> the enemies of God to plunder them for the glory of the king. That's what I want. I want to be someone who is actively working to liberate the people of God. That's what I want to be. Is that what you want to be? I want to actively work to liberate the people of God and not instead wait until the, the, the invitation comes to me. Will you pay a small price? And me go, I don't know, maybe. What was, the, what was the strategy again for the war? 300 of you, they have as many camels as sand on the seashore? I, mm, no, I don't think you're going to win this one. You should probably just stop. Sounds a little dangerous. Doesn't sound like you're going to win. Oh, this makes me think of Romans 1 calling good evil and evil good. And they're convincing other people to do evil along with them. Not only are they sitting out of the battle, but they're cursing the ones who are in the battle and saying they should stop. Can you imagine if that was us? Can you imagine if our mindset said, oh, that's too risky for the kingdom. I think that you should probably calm down. You should probably hold back a little bit of that for yourself. Who knows what might happen in the future? Can I tell you what it often looks like? It's not that God himself comes down. That did happen. And we didn't respond well to that either. But it's not so often that God himself comes down and says to you, look, boom, here I am. I'll show you every single sign that you want to see. I'll completely vindicate myself over and over and over again until there's no doubt. That's not typically who we have to trust. That's not typically who we have to respond to. It's typically people like Gideon. Imperfect. But we look back and we're like, Gideon's a hero. Not at that time he wasn't. He was just a guy that tore down an altar and a pole. And then made some seemingly poor decisions with the people he went to battle with. He hadn't been vindicated at that point. Who were the people actually following? Those 300. Who were they actually following? And yet Gideon was the one giving commands, wasn't he? We say, oh, I don't have a problem following the Lord. Well, that's debatable. I have a problem following imperfect men. That's definitely true. God puts imperfect men and imperfect women in your life who dish out commands, who dish out instructions, who dish out a game plan and a strategy. And that's often the decision that we have to make. Wait a second. Hmm. Let me look at their life. Do they seem like they have victory in every area of life? Let me hear that strategy again. Where's this money going to? Mm. No, I don't know if I like that strategy. Come back to me when you got a better strategy and, and maybe I'll give you some bread. You're going where? You're going to do what? <sighs> Let me know whenever you want to go over here and do this. I'll be on board for that. Thanks for coming by though. That's often what it looks like. And unfortunately... We get stuck consuming blessings and waiting for certain victory. And all along the while, we're asking God, reveal your will to me. Reveal your will to me. And armies are coming by your door, knocking on the door. Can we have some bread? We're in the middle of a journey. We're giving our lives to help save yours. And we're going to do what God has commanded us to do. And we're going... Let me pray about it. Let me pray about it. We don't have time for you to pray about it. We need bread right now. We're literally on the pursuit right now. You know what then? I'm going to have to say no. It's a no for me and my family. Can you bring up that quote from Reinhard Bonnke? Those who forever seek the will of God are overrun by those who do it. We 
We have to stop sitting and contemplating and asking God to reveal this deep, mysterious will of his. Lord, what do you want from my life? What, what is it that you require of me? I, I don't feel you close to me. I want to know you more. Forgive me of my doubt. And here we have the game plan and the strategy written out. But instead, what we're saying is, is there something a little more relevant to today? Something a little bit more that applies to me, something more specific for me and my family. I'm unique. We're unique, you know, and I want a unique calling and a unique way to fulfill that calling. Who do you think you are in this story? Don't you realize that you were aliens cut off strangers, enemies of God, and you somehow got to be included in the blessings? I'm unique and I want a unique part in my own role with my own speaking lines and I want to get paid handsomely for my role in this play and I want people to know my name. Who do you think you are? <laughs> we were rejected, alone, dead in our transgressions, far away from him. And he came to bring us near and say, hey, there's a story that's going on. Do you want to come be a part of it? And we respond back, can you write me my own sub story with my own separate plot lines and where I get to be the hero of the story? <laughs> Spitting in the face of God. That's what we're doing. He offers us his life and we spit on him and say, can you give me my own story? It's not about you. It's not about us. Attempt great things for God by believing his word that he will provide. Are you letting a fear of lack hold you back from what God has called you to do? A fear of lack. If we had the money, we would do it. Start impoverishing yourself to accomplish what God has called you to. Impoverish yourself. See if he lets you end up on the street. Impoverish yourself to do what God has called you to do. Our only excuse for not doing that is because we haven't seen that it'll actually work out. And this is exactly what this message is talking about. Impoverish yourself for what God has called you to do. Spend yourself. Put yourself out there. People might call you a fool, spit on you, call you a part of a cult, try and kill you, persecute you. There's a blessing when people persecute you. It's a double blessing. Not only are you obeying the commands of God, which come with the blessing, but you're getting persecuted, which is a double blessing. Yeah. These men pursued an incredible distance, just like the first. Deep into enemy territory, Gideon's 300 went, and they struck down all the Ishmaelites, and they took their plunder. Why? Because that's the destiny of those who believe before they've seen. To go deep into the enemy's territory. Strike down those who oppose God. Rescue the lost. Plunder the enemy. And establish the king. That's the destiny of those who believe before they've seen. The blessing that comes for those who believe before they've seen. Is that's where all the grace and the power and the hero stories are. You want a hero story? You're going to be nameless. But when you stand before the king, you'll be counted as a hero. You'll be counted as a friend, as a son who fulfilled the call. Nameless, again, Gideon's 300 are. Just like the 318 fighting men. You want to be recognized for who you are in the kingdom on this earth? You're running down the wrong road. There's an old saying that says, you spend your whole life climbing up a ladder and realize that you're on the wrong wall. Don't climb up the wrong ladder. Don't end up on the wrong wall. Do you want people to know your name in the kingdom? I want them to know my name. I want people to know that I'm a mighty warrior for the Lord. Watch out. Little seeds. It'll look good in the beginning, but it will grow up to be a weed 
It'll grow up to be thorns, nothing more than a fruitless branch cut off and thrown into the fire. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. There you find every evil practice. In reality, the reason that we don't step out and believe before we see is because of sin. It's just pride, unbelief, fear, and doubt. The feeling that comes when you know you should have stepped out in faith is torturous. Can anybody agree to that? I knew I should have stepped out in faith. Don't you hate that feeling? Do you think we can become numb to that? Do you think we can become numb to the feeling that we get from not stepping out in faith? I think so. I know what that feels like. Do you? I don't want to be numb to the feeling, the torturous feeling that comes from not stepping out in faith. I want God to make me so uncomfortable when I'm living by my own strength. Why? Because it's not about me. And it's not about just this life and what I can get in this life. It's about eternity. I have to be willing to pay whatever cost. I have to do it. And if that means discomfort in this life, <laughs> then I'm in good company. Let's look at one more example. Let's go to 1 Chronicles 12. Look at verse 1. It says, These were the men who came to David at Ziklag. Ziklag was in Philistine territory. Ziklag was a space that they gave David. Why? Because he was banished from the presence of Saul, son of Kish. They were among the warriors who helped him in battle. They were armed with bows and were able to shoot arrows or to sling stones, right-handed or left-handed. They were kinsmen of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Look at verse 8. Some Gadites defected to David at his stronghold in the desert. His stronghold in the desert. Look at where they're going to follow David. In 2 Samuel 23, 13, we see that three of the 30 mighty men came to him while he was at the cave of Adullam. That's where the discontented, the indebted, and distressed came to him. That's where his family came to join him. Because he had been banished from Saul's presence. Because Saul was trying to kill him. He had not yet been vindicated. He had not yet been validated. People did not yet see him as king. He was banished from the presence of the king. But look at these mighty men who came to join him because they knew where God was. They knew what God was doing. And they chose not to look with their eyes, but to look by faith. They chose to believe before they had seen. These were brave warriors ready for battle and able to handle the shield and spear. Their faces were the faces of lions. And they were as swift as gazelles in the mountains. Look at verse 14. These Gadites were army commanders. The least was a match for a hundred. And the greatest for a thousand. That's impossible. No man can defeat a thousand men. That's not possible. But we have story after story of these men standing in fields of beans. And defeating soldiers. Jumping into a pit with a lion. And defeating it. Grabbing a spear from a giant and killing him with it. Why? Because this is the grace and the power that comes to those who believe before they've seen. Because once it's been validated, once it's been vindicated, well then of course you can jump on as a bandwagoner. Of course you can jump on once it's been proven that it works. The crazy thing is, is you're not going to be needed as much. Early on in this ministry, devastating things happened. Devastating things happened. But there were people that God sent here 
to be a part of this ministry who to me had faces like lions, who to me would stand strong. And they saw something in a tiny little thing and in a frail person because this is where God was and this is what God was doing. And it was before any vindication had come, before any validation had come. Is that the way that you live your life? Do you look for where God is, but where man may not have recognized it yet and jump in with all your heart, believing before you've seen? If so, that's where all the grace and the power are. That's where all the exciting things are that you long to see in your life. Do you wish that there were more signs, miracles, and wonders and evidence of God moving in your life? The thing is, is that not much happens in the homes of those who reserve their bread while the army of God passes by their door asking for help. You don't need help doing nothing. We got to do something. We have to take our cues from the commands that have stood for thousands of years, regardless of what we see those doing around us. We have to recognize that the farther that we get away from risk and faith, the closer that we get to security and having all possibility of failure removed, the less we're going to have to show on that day that we stand before the king. But the more that we live with that giant gap between us and doing it in our own strength, the more these miraculous things are going to have to happen to close that gap. And then it's on him. It's not on us. The problem is we've insulated ourselves from all risk. And we claim that we're praying to hear the will of God. We're claiming to be seeking him about what we should do. And we're not doing the things he plainly stated in his word. You see, I know discipleship is the method. And so we believed before we saw it here. And now there's fruit. We believed in community before we saw it here. And now there's fruit. We believed in church discipline before we saw it. And now there's fruit. We believed in what the people, we believed that what the people here needed was the word of God and freedom in the Holy Spirit before we saw it. And now there's fruit. Not one of these ideas have originated with us. But God has given us supernatural grace and provision as we have been pursuing the enemy and promoting the kingdom. We have had miraculous stories of healings, deliverance from demons, overcoming the sins of sexual immorality, empowered mighty men and women, and watched families be radically transformed. You see, God has provided special blessings to us because we believed before we saw. But what about you? Let's go to Revelation 26. Right now, in many ways, Jesus has not been vindicated before the eyes of all the world. But there will be a day, 20 verse 6. <laughs> Nora had that look on her face. See, Jesus has not been vindicated before the eyes of all the world yet. People still have some doubt. Maybe even you have some doubt. Of whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, the risen King, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one to whom belong all power, dominion, and authority. Maybe you have some doubt. You see, Jesus' spirit is at work within those who have confessed him, who have believed in him and have been saved by him and continue in that faith. But maybe you have doubts this morning. Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed 
and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Can I tell you something? The strategy of the devil is to leave you guessing and doubting and struggling with sin and wondering about your identity for the rest of your life, questioning whether or not he'll come through for you and making it all about you. So that in the end, you've done nothing to promote the kingdom of God on this earth. That's his strategy. All the while, there is a growing army who pledge allegiance to the enemy and are rebelling against the king of kings. And they are passionate and they are ready to do his will. But what about you? It's time that we climb out of that whirlpool of trying to build our own kingdom, surround ourselves with comfort and entertainment, put ourselves around people who will tell us what we want to hear, push off the spirits leading, push off that call that's deep inside of all of us to live by faith beyond what we can see, to believe before we've seen, to carry his name to the ends of the earth, making disciples of all nations, thus fulfilling the command that Jesus gave before he left, before he ascended to the right hand of the Father to intercede for us to complete that very mission. You'll be stuck in doubt. You'll be stuck in fear, confused, all the while building the kingdom of the enemy unknowingly. You may not be doing it consciously. You're just doing it while you're asleep. We have to wake up. We have to believe before we've seen. This means us thinking with a mentality like what's described in the word. Not allowing this culture to determine our mentality, but allowing the word to tell us what's important. Allowing the word to determine the goals and the visions for our family. That's where we have to be. So have you truly stepped out in faith? Have you truly stepped out believing before you've seen? Turn to 1 Corinthians and then we'll close. Go to 1 Corinthians 1. Come on, when you get there, say, tell me the truth. Look in verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Seriously, take a sober assessment of yourself. Imagine you'd been born in a third world country where all you had ever known is barefoot, same clothes, limited food supply, living day to day. Imagine that that's where you had been born. Because it's a mirage where we are right now. We think that we're something when we're nothing. Because the standards that we judge by are human standards. We should be judging by kingdom standards. So from that standpoint, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But look at this. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose us even though we were foolish. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose us even though we were weak. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's why he employs this strategy of believing before we see. Because once we eliminate faith and risk, we start to boast that it was us who did it. The problem is what we produce won't last through the fire of heaven in our own strength. You see, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So when we close that gap of faith and risk, when we need to see before we believe, what we end up offering him won't stand that test of fire. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'm going to do something. 
I want you to read, uh, uh, I want you to think about what I'm about to say, each of these. And as I read off your position, if this is you and you recognize, I have been needing to see before I believe. And I want to be done with that foolishness. And I want to step out and promote the kingdom of God. Once I say where you're at, then would you stand? And as we stand in solidarity together, let this be a cry that we won't be sitting inside our homes when the army passes by asking for help, but that we will join the ranks and actually do what the king is calling us to do. Because that's where all the grace and the power and the exciting things lie. Not in doing it in our own strength with no risk, but in stepping out and believing before we see. Not in waiting and claiming that we're praying about the will of God, but instead doing the will of God. And that starts today. So for you, have you truly stepped out in faith, standing on the word that God has spoken to you? Or are you waiting for a few more things to work out before you fully commit to him? If that's you and you know that that's you, that you've been waiting for a few more things to work out before you fully commit to God, then stand up. Let it be done today. Don't wait to see if what I'm saying is valid or if it's actually going to work out. If you know that this is you, then stand up in faith. Stand up believing before you see. Because once everybody in this room has stood up, you're going to look back and say, I should have stood up at that point. Because you're literally getting a test to do it right now. Do you know that you've been waiting to see things work out before you fully commit to God? If that's you, stand up. The truth is, brothers and sisters who are standing up right now, he has already vindicated himself. And I am standing here to tell you that he is alive. He is risen. He is not dead. He has defeated death. So take a lesson from Thomas and don't demand more proof before you believe him. This is my challenge to you. Stay standing. What about us as pastors or elders? We are the imperfect men that God has put here. The imperfect men and women that God has put here. God has called you to this church. You know that God has called you to this church. You've been coming. But you're still waiting to see if we are worthy of following. You're waiting for us to get a few more victories. Or prove ourselves just a little more. If you know that that's you. You've been waiting on us to prove ourselves before you give yourself over. Not to follow what men say, but to follow what God says. He just uses imperfect men. If you know that that's you, stand up and don't be ashamed. Believe before you see it. If you know that you've been waiting to follow what we're saying and what we're talking about and the vision that we're laying out, and you know you've been waiting. Good. It's not about me. It's not about us. We're doing this for our children's children to get things right. Maybe you've been coming a few times to this church and you're just wanting a little more assurance that there will be victory here for you and your family. Come on, put an end to it. Put an end to it today. If you've been coming here a few times and you've been waiting for us to vindicate ourselves a little bit more before you give yourselves over to it, stand up, make a declaration today. Plant yourselves. If he told them to do it in Babylon and said, plant yourself here, pray for the prosperity here and I will make you prosper. Then give up on doubt. Give up on fear. Give up on disbelief. And instead take a stand in faith. If you know that that's you. And you've been waiting to see before you believe. And that you know you need to be planted here. And be here fully. Then stand up. I'm knocking on the door. Listen to me the rest of you. We all take calculated steps of faith. We are willing to take certain risks, give certain amounts. Hear me on this. Sacrifice certain things. But many times you draw the line. Not because God hasn't asked it of you, but because you're not sure that things will work out if you do what you claim you think he has spoken to you, although you know he has spoken it to you. And so he asks something of you and you draw the line and you tell him, I can't. He tells you to give something and you say, no, I'm not sure that things would work out if I did that. If you know that that's you, then stand up. 
Do you see? Do you see how we have to go to war against this because it's not about us? Don't you see? The only way to please the king is by faith. The only way to please the king is by allowing there to be a gap where you don't know what's going to happen. And then he comes through in miraculous ways. That's what we need and our children need to see a faith like that. Our children have to observe us living that way. Not just hear it from our mouths, observe us. They need to feel the tension as mom and dad wrestle with trying to live by faith. They've got to know what that looks like. And they've got to see us overcome. We will not ask God to vindicate himself anymore. We will not ask God to vindicate himself anymore. And what we see written in his word, we will do. And then if along the way the spirit leads us to something specific, then praise God. But we will not sit down doing nothing, locked inside our homes, keeping bread from those who are in the middle of the battle. We'll walk outside our homes and go, even into enemy territory, to pursue that which has been stolen, that which is lost. For the glory of the king. Because do you know what these mighty men helped do? Establish David's reign on the earth. And that's what our job is. To help establish and usher in the reign of the king. That's why we're here. I'm going to read 1 Peter 1.7 over those of you who are standing. These trials, these battles, these opportunities, these enemies, these situations have come so that your faith, which is believing before seeing, may be proved of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. Let me read that again. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Because the secret is, if we believe before we see, then we will see. If we believe before we see, we will see and we will be standing on the right side. We will not risk being on the wrong side when it is revealed that everything that Jesus said has come to pass. Every promise that he has made has been fulfilled. Every provision that he said would be there was there. It was us who didn't reach out and take it. Instead, we will be filled with faith and we will go to the ends of the earth and we will make a way for our children to go to the ends of the earth and for their children to go to the ends of the earth because it's not about us. And so mighty God, I pray, Lord, that we would be united in believing before seeing. God, that we would be filled with an inexpressible joy while we sacrifice and go through trials of many kinds because you are forging us and testing us so that what we lay down before you will, will remain through the fire and will show that it was done by faith. Lord, let us learn to live by faith instead of learning to eliminate all risk from our life, insulating ourselves from danger. Lord, teach us to be men who are fearless, who as our wives and children are crying at the difficulty that we're experiencing, we don't give in to it and become cowards in the moment, but instead we say, God has never failed us. He has never let us down. He has always been faithful and he will be faithful again. It is us who must prove ourselves. Lord, let us raise up women in this place who will trust and never give way to fear, who will not fret who will not doubt, who will not be shaken because the kingdom that we're receiving won't be shaken. And Lord, let us raise up children who know 
what is right and know what they should be doing because their parents have laid that foundation. Their parents have blazed those trails and they can walk on those firmly established paths. Lord, let us be a church who fulfills the great commission. We thank you, Jesus. Have your way with us, no matter what it costs us. And everybody standing, everybody seated, everybody in here says, Amen. Amen. You guys be blessed.